traditional demographic analysis typically focuses on consumer groups in a static way, but the way humans eat is way more complicated than that. Grocery and food service purchases are often instigated by specific need states from consumers, and those need states often shift multiple times in the same day. That begs the question, what are consumers looking for in their food products in the current day? I'm Chris Campbell with the Food Institute, and we're about to discuss that and more with Carrie's Salmia Nair and Shannon Coco on this episode of the Food Institute podcast, coming at you right now. Now, before we get started, I did want to take a moment to thank the sponsor of today's episode, and that is Kerry. Kerry is the world's leading taste and nutrition partner for the food, beverage, and pharmaceutical markets. They innovate with their customers to create great tasting products that feature improved nutrition and functionality while fostering a better impact on the planet. Their leading consumer insights, global RDNA team of over 1,100 food scientists, and extensive global footprint enable them to solve their customers' complex challenges using differentiated solutions. At Kerry, they are driven to be their customers' most valued partner, creating a world of sustainable nutrition, and will reach over 2 billion consumers with sustainable nutrition solutions by 2030. For more information, you can take a look at the description of this episode and get a link directly to their website. So, with that all said, we welcome Shannon and Salmia to the show. Shannon, I was hoping you could lead off by introducing yourself, and then Salmia, you can take a stab at that as well. So good afternoon, Chris. Um, My name is Shannon Coco. I'm the Strategic Marketing Director for the Meat and Meals Businesses for Cary North America. Um, My role as Strategic Marketing Director is to work with our businesses to develop insight-led strategies. And that's everything from what our technology teams are innovating around to working with our customers on their category and product innovation and working with our sales teams to help bring the best of Cary to our customers. Before working for Carrie, um, and I've worked with Carrie both in North America and Europe, so it's great to have both those perspectives. I worked in higher education, so um, this is my first foray into food. I've been at Carrie for about seven years, but before that, worked in higher education in the U.S. and Ireland, and um, really felt that between that and my degree and degrees in music, anthropology, and marketing, um, I've been able to find um, a job now with Carrie that helps me to really strengthen my skill set when it comes to understanding what consumers want, how we can help our customers to understand that and then do something about it. So I'm excited to be here to talk a little bit more about how we found Americans are eating and what's motivating them going forward. And thanks for sharing that, Shannon. Uh, Salmia, could you also give a little bit of a background about yourself so our audience could get a little bit more familiar with you? Sure, absolutely. Um, But good afternoon, Chris and Shannon. I am Salmia Nair. I lead the consumer insights and research function for Kerry under the global bucket. We lead the center of excellence for Kerry as far as consumer research and insights is concerned. And um, our focus is entirely on bringing the outside perspective in so that we are more consumer centric, but our customer focused when we do any um, initiatives as far as understanding consumer behavior, understanding you know, competitor behavior, understanding customer behavior as well, so that we are uncovering those consumer truths that can be um, that can be used to create opportunities. So for instance, with Shannon, we would be, you know, helping her create those insight-led strategies there and uncover those questions that just gnaw us right in the middle of the day, uh, wondering what consumers would expect, what consumers would behave, and what ultimately would drive their need states and their behaviors at the end. Um, Prior to Kerry, I have always uh, been one within the research and insights world. Um, I guess I can say I found my passion really early. In addition to um, you know working within the food and beverage space for now over a decade prior to Kerry, I worked for the Cantor Research uh, Services under the Added Value uh, brand, where it was always about converting consumer research into actionable solutions um, that one make it easier for consumers and you know think about sustainable. Uh, solutions in the marketplace that consumers might not be thinking about today that could be unmet needs that we can solve for in the future. Um, So a personal passion project of working with Kerry is also seeing those research applied into technologies and into strategies and ultimately seeing a product on the shelf is is truly uh, magical. Um, I spent now about two years looking at this motivation research that we'll talk to you about. 
but it has just become a lot more important for us to keep our pulse on the consumer with the changing marketplace, you know, the pandemic that's affected, the upcoming recession that is anticipated. Um, quite a few of these really trigger questions, assumptions, and hypotheses we have about consumers. And we're here really to just be that voice of reason, um, also to a certain extent be that advocate to a consumer who can't really articulate their needs um, and help, you know, Kerry and our, our peers here solve for the world of sustainable nutrition. I love all the expertise we have here, and it's going to be great to kind of trace uh, from consumer motivation all the way out to messaging back to them and showcasing the solutions that you could be making uh, in specific food products. But I think the best way to open this up here is that I don't think anyone would be surprised to think that the consumer, both in the U.S. and globally, has changed drastically over the last couple of years. But I think one of the questions people will really ask would be, but how did they change? So I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about the research for how America eats, you know, some of the motivation and the methodology and getting all of this information together. Could we start off there? Absolutely. And maybe Shannon, I'll take it here and then, you know, yeah, dive right in. Right. Um, we've been partnering now for for, like I said, over a couple of years now to look at what consumer motivations are. And I think at the beginning, at the onset of this piece, when we started having these conversations was, look, motivations and needs are typically very universal, right? Long lasting. Um, need states don't significantly shift year on year. However, how they manifest definitely do, right? Products change, categories rise and fall. Um, there certainly are those aspects, but they are typically long lasting. Now we realized that in any case, in any scenario, external triggers typically affect a change in consumer behavior if they last for more than two, two to three weeks. Now, psychologists say that for a behavior to become a habit, it typically takes about two to three weeks for you know behaviors to set. So say, for instance, if you do want to go to the gym and it has become really hard, stick with it for at least three weeks, right? But now with the pandemic and economic uncertainty that people have relatively been facing now for the last three years, we realized consumers have changed those triggers and um, those behaviors are certainly reprioritized by consumers today. So we aim to capture just this. We aim to capture, is there a change in the need states? So we wanted to ask ourselves, hey, our hypothesis of changing behaviors, is that really true? And then finally wanted to uncover if the motivations have shifted, if there are new need states that have arrived in a pandemic-affected consumer. Right. And that's the reason why we kind of looked at 5000 different consumers from different sets, you know, from ethnicities to the obvious demographics, but also behavioral groups of consumers right from the masses to those kind of focused, um, functionally focused, nutritionally focused consumers so that we are capturing everyone essentially within the U.S. Uh, space. That is really laying the foundation for our compass program, which we can certainly you know, talk a little bit more about here closed off, you said, so there were 13 motivations that are driving all consumer choices. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? What do these motivations look like? All right. So um, as a foundation, what we've uncovered through this is a clear lens um, that really develops into four different quadrants, right? There are two, two that are purely on a personal individual level versus you know, motivations and needs that are largely society and community driven, like it's we not, it's 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 we not me uh, type of a thought process, which is one end of, 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 of a quadrant. And the other end is physical tangible. So needs and motivations that are essentially largely linked to tangible aspects, um, such as health goals, right? I want to be more proactive versus reactive, those types of uh, needs versus mental emotional. Those are aspects that you do, you can't really put a finger on, right? So for instance, there is a lot more focus on, hey, I want to cope with life a little better. It's a stressful marketplace. There are need states that are, I need um, solutions, whether they're technology or food and beverage that really help me have a stronger mental and emotional wellness in the future. So we have four quadrants in total, um, which is personal versus social, and then physical versus mental. Um, which really forms our compass, right? So that is our compass framework. Uh, we have all of these motivations, 13 different motivations that are actually on specific different points along this compass. Some of them would be more 
um, personal and tangible, such as, you know, wanting to meet my health goals. I want to stay more active. I want to, you know, forecast a better health for my for, for me and my family. Versus then you see certain mental social goals where you're thinking about, hey, um, redefining um, what role genders have in, in, in a workspace or in a consumer world. What role does healthy aging really look like from an emotional standpoint, cognitive health? Those types of aspects really rise up there. Um, but each of these 13 motivations have a very specific point on that compass. And Sammy, I think what's really interesting, tell me if you want to dig in here, but what I found most interesting from the category and strategy side was while some of those motivations were ones that maybe weren't immediately a surprise, there were ones that maybe have come to the level of a true motivation versus what we've seen in the past. Um, And I think that was really interesting based on what you mentioned earlier around the effects of the pandemic changing need states and consumers also mentally and economically preparing for a recession. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Gosh, um, do you remember the time when you asked me which of these motivations um, seem to be longstanding versus newer Mm -hmm. motivations? And that's just exactly right. Because if you look at the map or if you could see the map right now and you could see see the 360 view of the motivations, there are three specific motivations that are actually on the bottom, right, towards the social aspect and towards the, you know, more socially triggered uh, need states. And that I'd say is definitely one that we've been seeing growing in relevance on the map. Um, It has evolved a lot more as being a significant purchase driver among consumers. So I wouldn't say it's a nice to have or a value add anymore. Um, when you're looking at consumers, they are seeking those solutions for the society and for the community at large. So we di- we do have three need states or motivation uh, groups right now, which is closer to the social, um, you know, motivations that are essentially impacting the society at large, which is we, not me. So the philosophy of, hey, there should be solutions that certainly are, um, you know, food solutions, beverage solutions, you know, community solutions that are not just focused on individual benefits, but also for the planet and for the community. Mm. We then have another one, which is influence change, which I think, Shannon, is 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 personally like one of those pieces that has come up this year alone, right? Where yeah. we're really looking at that change in the the... I'm not saying altruistic. I think it is not as much as altruistic, but this is more like this is why this is a motivation. It's a trend. It's not just being altruistic. Um, It's a need right now of consumers, often unmet in some categories and, you know, in in certain industries. But I'd agree. um, I I agree. There certainly are motivations that are changing over the years. And some of that also, I think, is based on consumers taking charge, right? So it's not Mm -hmm. just that recognition of their social impact or their environmental impact, but it's also recognizing they're the ones that are going to either make the change happen or kind of settle for what change is being put in their as the opportunity in front of them. And I've seen that with apparel companies um, at Duty Free just last week. There's a, a sustainable apparel company I've seen that with, you know, when I'm booking a flight, you see the CO2 impact, right? We see that in terms of social movements that are active, both here in the US as well as abroad. And I think that mentality of that social impact is something we expect, um, certainly myself, Samia and the Kerry team is is only going to increase. And we're, we want to be part of changing that and helping support both customers and our their consumers and making that change and being part of that decision versus letting it happen to them. And I would agree. We're starting to see it. I think some consumers might be pushing back a little bit to the unfamiliar, but I think Shannon, Mm -hmm. your point about air flight, you know, prices, seeing the CO2 when I uh, Mm -hmm. recently booked a flight for work here, I was very surprised to see that, you know, it's not something that you're, you know, typically ready to see, you know, I know it's able to be looked up, but now it's really getting prominence, right? Yes. So I think it's a great point to take a look at. Uh, Another thing that I saw in the research that I thought was really interesting, too, that I'd like to talk about is just this focus on mental and emotional health and how that's been growing. Mm. Can we talk about that a little bit more? Because I think it is interesting from that me, we, or sorry, we, not me uh, section. Now we're talking a little bit more of a personal reason, too, right? Something that's very entrenched within each and one of us. So can we talk a little bit more about that focus on mental and emotional health? 
Yeah, absolutely. Shannon, do you want to take it from, you sure. know, from your end, from the strategy, and I can certainly kind of add in. Sure. So what we're seeing, and, and so the, we have a motivation on this 360 spectrum that we've created called Cope With Life. And essentially what we found for a consumer motivation is that there's increased uncertainties and consumers also are trying to juggle their priorities day to day and finding time to unwind for self-care to even be able to break away from the rush of their life is, is becoming more top of mind because it's increasingly becoming difficult to do. So what we found is that being able to find ways and to address the, the needs for consumers to practice self-care, whether that's, you know, finding downtime for a moment of respite, or in some cases, actually, you know, if we think about it from a category and food and beverage perspective, adding health and functional benefits that support their mood management, or maybe um, connected with managing stress and stress relief. So think botanicals, lavender, um, eucalyptus, even lime in some cases. Those are some of the things top of mind we see coming to life um, as consumers are trying to figure out how do they balance life. And if you think about it, they're going from a world where many of them may have had to juggle being teachers as well as active employees, as well as whatever else may be going on in their lives over the last year or two. Um, now going into a world where maybe they're trying to juggle that back outside the home and, in, and their responsibilities have changed or increased in some cases. So this mental health, I think in particular, I don't know from you, but just being in a, a part of a, an employee community and talking with my own friends, I've seen an increased need for us to be able to be more aware of it and to support each other through that. So um, that's a key motivation for the immediate that I, I expect we're going to continue to see coming coming to life. And you may even see it on your social media feed. You may see increased um, advertisements for um, online therapy. I actually have saw a lot of increase in that over COVID as well. So I think it's coming from all angles, from food to, you know, how do you actually actively self-care and support your mental health? To how does that impact how you're able to show up for the people and your workplace or your friends and family that maybe are relying on you as well? Samia, what would you add to that that I didn't think about yet? You know, we, I have more than anything, every single time we look at these motivations, you just start to build these links between mm -hmm. each of these motivation sets. So like, first off, the 13 motivations have their own space and like set of needs, right, Shannon? But it all seems to come down to this kind of focus on the future. Consumers have a stronger focus on the future over the years, um, whether it is their health, whether it's their finances clearly, whether it's immunity and making sure that they are not vulnerable to, you know, kind of health issues, especially post-pandemic. Um, it just makes me feel like a, all, all roads point to forward, right? Mm -hmm. and, when it comes to coping with life, um, whether they are kind of those mental wellness, functional foods, them wanting just some time and space for themselves so that they can manage their stress better. It just makes me feel a lot more, uh, Shannon, lately, un unlike the other years that we've been running these kind of motivation type um, behavioral research and perception research, is this larger focus on the future. So when you're thinking mm -hmm. about healthy aging, when you're thinking about kind of all of those sustainable motivations that are coming coming through the focus on the planet community, it's very future focused, which we've just, um, it's, it's, it's surprising in many ways, because, you know, the past pandemic has always been about like, let's focus on the family, let's focus on how to kind of um, keep the pandemic at bay and, you know, um, make sure that you're kind of meeting your health goals. But this focus on future has just become a lot more um, prominent. And I think the best part about this research is also the worst part for this podcast, because there's so much to go through, right? You say you have these 13 states and they all kind of move together. Uh, I really find it interesting. At the end of the podcast, we're going to share a link so that people that want to learn a little bit more about this can. But I think what we can move into as well is talking a little bit about how food and beverage producers and brands can kind of react to some of these uh, different states. So I'm hoping maybe we could use them almost as a case study. So I'm mm -hmm. hoping you could open up just when you take a look at 
you know, all of these headwinds that the food industry has faced over the last couple of years. And then you take a look at how consumers are reacting to the pandemic inflation. You know, what does all of this mean for food and beverage producers? And maybe we can open up with you, Shannon, and get your perspective here. When you take a look at how the consumers had to change over the last couple of years and some of these key motivations that you found, you know, what kind of things can food and beverage companies do to really take a, you know, leverage this insight and really try to, you know, meet some of those needs that consumers have or may not even really mm-hmm. know they want yet? What, what could you share about that? Yeah. Um, so when it comes to how do you make this actionable, it's a great question. And that's what we strive to do. Um, we've looked across nine categories and applied all of these motivations and need states, some of which we've been able to touch on today to those categories. So it's everything from chicken and cooking sauces to savory and sweet snacks to dairy um, and functional beverages, refreshing beverages and more. Um, And I think what we've found um, is each category has its own need. So we're happy through that link that you'll share, Chris, that'll give people a little bit of a taste, pardon the pun, um, of how they can action that for their specific category. But I wanted to give you just one example that really stood out to me. Um, I've worked in food for for really the last seven years at Carrie specifically, and then in my past lives, um, certainly being a, an, a lover of food. Um, but when it comes to some of those motivations, cooking sauces, maybe an unexpected example that often comes to my mind, especially as we think about where the consumer is now, post you know heavy pandemic isolation, remoteness in a lot of ways, but pre really in the recession mindset, uh, which many are are already mentally and economically preparing for. So the first one that manufacturers can really think about when it comes to cooking sauces is this opportunity to reward and deliver craveability. We found that with consumers, there's continues to be a gap for how do you make them and just enjoy the moment. And I think we've talked a little bit about that here today when it comes to cope with life, when it comes to thinking about how they take that time for themselves and for their family. Um, That is, I think, first and foremost, giving somebody an enjoyable moment, something that we want them to be able to experience. And and we know that's going to be more important, especially over the next year or two, because nearly half of U.S. consumers expect they're going to be cooking more at home as you know, as food service may become prohibitive for some, as inflation impacts maybe what or how they previously would have been purchasing. So being able to satisfy those craveable moments is always at the heart of what we do at Carry and think about from a taste nutrition company. The other half of that is nutrition. And I know we've talked a little bit about here today, how do you future proof for that? So we're working with customers and, and thinking to the future about What are those functional benefits that you can bring into those taste experiences? And part of that comes back to um, supporting customers and that future proofing. But some of it comes back to that we met we not me mentality that we talked about as well around finding food and beverages that are more sustainable, that maybe are focused and committed to reducing food waste or finding creative ways to Um, utilize products that may otherwise have been wasted um, as well. And there's actually an app. I don't know if I don't want to overly promote something, but there's an app. I I live in Philadelphia. It's called Too Good To Go. And I actually get notification every day of the restaurants or retailers in my vicinity that have food that otherwise would be going to waste. So there's an opportunity, I think, both at a retailer or food service player perspective to enable that reduced food waste and sauces, meats, foods are a heavy piece of that. And then there's also an opportunity for manufacturers to think differently about their how they're designing innovation and really utilizing everything that goes in that process so that they can reduce their waste and also reduce their reliance on ingredients that maybe they can omit or use differently in their processes today. The last thing that stands out to me when I think about cooking sauces as an example is really that cope with life piece. It's something that is certainly high on a lot of consumers' minds as they're trying to balance it all and find time, finding time for themselves is often not at the helm of that. Um, and so there's some ways when it comes to taste experiences for manufacturers that are in cooking sauces in this example, for using botanicals and extracts that are sustainable and deliver just 
a really clean experience and can support that mood management is something we're seeing come to the fore more. We're seeing more lavender and more florals and more natural um, ingredients coming through in those cooking sauces. But we're also seeing manufacturers looking at how they can make it easier for consumers. So they're also taking the guesswork out of complex recipes. They're making it easier for them to find those unique ingredients in a sauce starter or something that may be prepackaged into a refrigerated meal kit. And so being able to really enable the consumer to have that value while also recognizing there's a balance between time and what's motivating them are some of the things that as we're digging into our customers, we really see creating this dynamic spider web, if you will, of motivations and how each of those, while very different on the surface, can directly impact what consumers are seeing, doing, and the choices they're ultimately liking when they're looking for a food product. Gosh, Anna, do you realize that there is just so much of compounded need states in this space? Hugely. <laughs> right? Like it's all just laddered up. And I mean, ultimately, the biggest unmet need state, even when you're thinking about kind of sauces, is, you know, consumers wanting to be on their A game. Like, yeah you know, economy or, or pandemic or whatever aside, irrespective of anything, I think that being on your A game as a family of, you know, maybe a multi-generational household where sauces is a solution, but just seeing the compounding of need states and, and what you can as a, you know, um, as a supplier to to large companies here and um, being uh, being critically looking at taste plus nutrition is just so much more important, especially when you're thinking about that and consumer, right? Who wants everything, wants taste, wants nutrition, and wants to think about the, the planet and the society at large is just a lot more important now. Consumers are just less likely to trade off and having those solutions. Um, and companies like Kerry to, to to focus in, I mean, gosh, we have so many talented folks in Tony who are constantly thinking about that, that balance between taste and nutrition. And to deliver that to that and consumer is just, um, is, is, is an exciting space. And I think one of the things from the pandemic, at least speaking from personal experience, I skilled up cooking during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the things that consumers are learning how to cook. And I think that kind of talks to both of the points you're talking about. They can cook healthier for themselves and they can cook those restaurant quality and taste forward experiences. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering, you know, with that lens, how important is it to kind of put out products that meet all of these different need states? Um, is Do you suggest you find products that kind of meet multiple need states? Do you think having a line of products that meet individual need states, how do you kind of look at this when you're doing product formulation? You know, is it something that you should tackle as a unit? Is it something you should tackle individually? How would you talk about that? It's a, it's a challenge, right? Because there is a lot to be considered. Um, and for us, I think we focus on understanding what our, what our customers' goals are and, and how we can bring that market and consumer perspective to find out what that right fit is for them. Right. Because there's an element here of whether it's a certain price point, whether it's certain claims or differentiators that are really helping their product meet consumer needs. Everyone brings something slightly different to the table. Um, but one way, Chris, that we have been able to think about this, because as myself, Sammy, and the team dug into it, there are so many different directions you can go. You're right. It's to really look at how how do we pair those top needs or and what are those top needs if we think about cu cooking sauces as a category example that help us reach the largest consumer group and that's not going to answer the question for everyone who's working in the space but if you're a mainstream retailer producer operator being able to reach a mass audience is always is never a bad thing i should say so um as an example in cooking sauces working with Samia, she actually did analysis that helped us to get to some of those, um, some of those really mainstream goals. And so what we found with, if we really wanted to simplify, overly simplify, I should say, um, what those top two needs are that need to be paired to reach about three quarters of all consumers across the U.S., it's, it has to taste good. And actually familiarity, funny enough, was the, was the pairing 
that helped us reach three quarters of the mass consumers. So giving them something that takes that guesswork out of creating a complex dish or that helps them to enjoy that comfort moment is really what drove that mass consumer reach. The second, the second and third pairings also with taste that came to the top were craveability. I know we talked about it a little bit earlier, but a similar percentage of consumers wanted to see taste and craveability. Those are the needs that first and foremost are top of their mind when it comes to the soft space. And then the third was taste and trying something new. So again, right, it can be the same consumer on a certain occasion on a, on a different day who maybe in one instance is saying, I want to just know what I'm getting. I want to stick to what's familiar and I want to be able to deliver it. No questions asked. It'll meet the taste or need I expect. You may have somebody who says, just give you the good stuff. I want it to be indulgent. I want it to satisfy this moment and helping me cope with life or reward myself. And then in the third instance, you may have somebody who says, you know what? Today, I just need something different. I need to switch it up. I need to shake up how I'm thinking about things, how I'm tackling problems. And um, that means also I want to try something new with my lunch or I need to try something new with my standard order of chicken nuggets when it comes to um, creating a new experience and just giving me something to refresh around. Yeah, Shan and I agree. I, I think one thing that probably is a lot more um, prominent too, right, is our discussions on meeting customization needs yes. from consumers. Everyone wants, you know, I'm not talking just about the keto consumer and the diet driven consumer, but that healthy lifestyle means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. So I know it's not, um, I mean, this is pretty obvious, right? Not one size does not fit all, um, but you try to get to the largest group with a solution that you're providing so that it comes at a price point that is most ideal for you. But we should not be forgetting about that, you know, group of consumers who are really thinking about, say, for instance, plant-based and uh, looking at cooking sauces that are probably dairy-free um, and looking at that, that's probably the fourth main stage, right, under sauces, um, Shannon, that just comes so close um, to the group. Yes, it's not mass, but we also need to cater to solutions that are more next wave that probably consumers want to gravitate to because it's good for the planet, good for them. They want to cut out dairy. They want to cut out, you know, different elements in food. Um, those are also solutions we should think about. But it's it's true. There's no one size fits all. And yes, when you look at the compass, it can be overwhelming, assuming that you need to meet every need state and every motivation. But that's not right. Right. Like any compass, you're always looking at due north, due south. You're always looking at a certain focus. And I'd say you always start off looking at your consumer motivations with that focus and try to build back. Like, are you too squarely in the individual beneficial convenient solution space and want to you know also appeal to the sustainability angle from a business standpoint a strategy standpoint then how do you edge closer together so think about this also as a toolkit our compass is also a tool that gets you to say are you too you know focused in one quadrant and you need to kind of pull back towards taste you want to pull back towards the reward myself motivation or whether you need to kind of edge closer to sustainability so think about it as a toolkit it's not a you don't have to uh, you don't have to create solutions that match that meet every need state i think it's important to remember too right the fluidity of it all we all go through different need states and i think that's mm-hmm. often kind of forgotten when you do demographic analysis sometimes that kind of takes the back seat exactly. and you know really focusing on those individual need states and how they kind of evolve in a person even through the course of a week right so i'm sure mm-hmm. any listener could be thinking about their prior week and realize, yes, I had a couple of different need states through the week, right? So I think that's interesting. Uh, I think we'd be remiss, though, if we didn't talk a little bit about how inflation might be impacting a lot of these different trends. Um, The thing that really struck me, you know, over the last couple of years is the food industry. I don't want to say that it doesn't change, but, you know, it really had to change drastically over the last couple of years. And I think inflation is starting to put a similar type of pressure on it. At least when you read the news reports, it does seem to be adding a little bit of extra pressure for consumers. So I was hoping we could talk a little bit about that, how rising prices are impacting, you know, how it's affecting their purchase decisions, their decisions overall. And maybe we can jump into that, starting with you, Salmia. Do you have any information on that? Oh, um, we always have our, we try to always have our uh, finger on the consumer pulse. And we just came out of doing a 
inflation study, right? Sentiment around inflation study with consumers. Um, so we pulsed consumers across the globe, to be honest, and, and I'll speak particularly about North America here. Um, but we found that a lot of consumers are already bracing themselves, obviously so. Um, but there are areas where they are likely to pare back their budget on versus, you know, areas that are truly inelastic, right? Um, Numerator is another agency that actually also found that 95% of households, U.S. households right now, are making changes to purchasing habits because they are, you know, bracing themselves for rising prices in the marketplace. Um, your cup of coffee is no longer just $5. It's, you know, edging to $7, $8. So how do you account for what is needed versus indulgent and that you wouldn't give up on? Um, I don't know about you, Shannon, but I wouldn't give up on my 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 pack of Oreos <laughs> or my bag of tortillas. Um, but unfortunately, we, we are seeing how consumers are now being a lot more... Um, you know, cautious when it comes to spending. Now, 63% of consumers we found um, say that grocery prices are certainly rising. They are really seeing that, you know, rise in prices for their usual monthly grocery purchases. But the the percentage of consumers who are likely to cut their grocery budget is significantly small. Mm. And to our surprise, it was just 32% of consumers within that space who said that, yeah, I'm going to have to cut my grocery budget. So our next question to these consumers were like, wait, so you know that grocery prices are going to rise. Inflation is, you know, due to get affected. Recession is due. If you listen to any minute of the news um, today, is all talking about the recession. So how does consumer expect to stay within their budget or account for rising prices within their grocery budget if they are not making any changes? And we realized that um, there are certain categories that are going to get hard hit. Obviously so, just like myself, I realize I'm very, very standard when it comes to my food and beverage choices. Every consumer in the US said they are least likely to cut out their snack purchases, their sweet purchases. The areas that are going to get hard hit are certainly those, um, those that they would find substitutes for. So for instance, I wouldn't buy my bag of, you know, um, really premium, newly launched potato chips. I might curb my adventurous enthusiasm a little bit, but I might go back to say private label, right? We always talk about how private label is going to rise in the light of, you know, recessionary, um, um, you know, behaviors. And that's probably where substitution behavior is coming for. The other piece you spoke about was cooking at home a lot more. So a lot of them indicated among that 32% of people who are going to bear back that they're going to cook at home a lot more, you know, a lot more than they already have in the past two years during the pandemic. So there are different areas, um, specific categories that they will pay back on more. Um, there are indications that coffee and tea is going to get hit hard more, plant-based is going to get hit hard more, but it is good for us to note that you know, categories such as sauces, for instance, now that we're talking about uh, meal solutions, you know, uh, condiments, um, cooking kits, all of those are still going to continue because they help enable consumers to focus on what truly matters, which is their family right now. Um, and wanting to take that headspace towards mental wellness, spend more money on functional fortified products and solutions. So they're being more critically, um, you know, watchful of those trends. Unfortunately, on that end, we also see 70% of consumers who said that they are likely to cut their dining out budget. So we want to kind of tap into that a little bit more and say, okay, you're going to cook at home a lot more, pare back your dining out behavior. But keep this in mind, it's not 100% of consumers. That means they're still going to choose, you know, areas where they would want to dine out, go into food service, experience that, you know, much needed escape in their life. Um, so there are just different aspects here where you're thinking about inflationary behavior. It is going to be a stressful time. There is no two, two, you know, two sides to that story. But the fact that consumers are going to not want to change their at-home behavior as much is uh, a big insight we found this time. Yeah, so the private label thing is really interesting to me. Food Institute, we've been tracking it, obviously, for a long time. And there was rising interest in private label before the pandemic. Then there, at least in our reporting, we found this strange dip where nostalgia kind of ruled out and people went back towards, you know, 
maybe legacy brands, uh, things they grew up with. But now we're starting to see the same thing, that private label seems to be tracking up a little bit. So I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about that and some of the consumer motivations you have found uh, that are pushing people towards that. I know we talked a little bit about, you know, the price point, but are there any other mm -hmm. aspects to this we should be thinking about? Absolutely. And I think that inflation certainly plays a critical role in what's pushing some consumers back into private label. But to your point, Chris, I think we we had already started to see this growth in private label investment from retailers pre-pandemic. And, and maybe that paused it in some cases slightly more than we would have expected. But we are seeing that growth still continue and if anything, accelerate because of the recession, recessionary mindset that consumers are moving into. Um, and for some consumers, I think what's different from previous recessionary mindsets that we've we've observed so far is that they're not looking to private label as a trade down to their favorite brands, um, but instead private label has really upped its game and private label is focused on quality. They've focused on many of those motivations and need states that we've tackled today and also looked at what does value mean to their consumers. Um, and so not just brands have a way of delivering their value, but private label, that may mean in some cases, larger pack sizes. That may mean more premium ingredients. That may mean in some cases they're expanding into um, restaurant quality or organic type offerings to really expand the spectrum of what they have on offer for consumers across price points. And I think that's really what we had star started to see pre-pandemic that is helping the private label adoption really accelerate and accelerate quickly. Um, private label today is about 17.5% of grocery sales, according to a, a, a recent article that came out from Forbes. But what I also found interesting was that um, the private label grocery share is actually lowest among low-income households. So that was something that from their research recently that they had identified um, and that they found it was actually middle and higher income consumers who had been moving towards that private label space in recent times. And I think that does in some ways come back to that question around what does value in private label mean? Um, and how are those brands really adapting themselves to not just be the, you know, private label store brand option of a leading category brand, but how do they, in some cases, really set the bar for what that category's experience, taste, qualities, certifications, claims, formats, what that looks like? Um, and I think two examples that definitely come to my mind are Aldi and Target. I think both of them have done tremendous work over the last few years to really reshape what innovation means for their offerings. And we see that really paying off for them um, and drawing in those consumers, um, more of those middle and high income consumers in particular, um, who are recognizing that and aren't looking for that traditional value, low price point, but see value through those other qualities that they're really hanging their hat on this day. And one of my favorite things you see now, too, is even private label. You could trade down within private label. I'm yeah, names, exactly. Keeping it on the sauce theme, I have a local grocer and, you know, you could get your regular marinara or you can go and upgrade and they have their own vodka or arrabbiata, right? So Ooh. you're starting to see, yeah, right? It's starting to see, you know, I guess even tiers within private label at this point, mm -hmm. too. Absolutely. No, Chris, you're absolutely right. We look at it from a tier standpoint. And Shannon, I mean, I cannot say how many times we peered over those figures where we assumed in the prior years, private label was always about the value and was always about economy. You want to save some money and that's why you want to go for it. But um, we started to realize that about, you know, look at the percentages, right? Lower income, 12% of their purchases are related to private label or attributed towards private label versus you see households that are like 100,000, 200,000 plus where 20% of their groceries mm -hmm. are purchased from private label. And that was just, it is night and day compared to 10 years ago, right? Um, where you kind of see this discount behavior slowly go away. Private label and discount is not to be uttered in the same sentence anymore. And you're right with tears, because now we start to see that even among the lower value-based 
um, private label there are tiers. So forget about like the low value and the high premium private label. There are tiers within those now that are available. And um, I don't know about you, Chris. I hope you bought the Arabiata because I that's my favorite too. I, I don't mind spending, you know, 10 bucks to get my pasta sauce. Um, it depends on the current that. need state, right? <laughs> it does. I was going to say, I have a different need state. <laughs> uh, I know where I, where I am on the compass. <laughs> But you can appreciate that, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. it's, it's a great example, Samia, of you know those those almost inception kind of <laughs> brands within a brand offerings mm-hmm. that we're really seeing the private label players proliferate, and um, and it's working. So from what we've seen, especially over the last three to six months, it, it's really changing things. So I think there's a lot of good challenge for the industry as a whole as to how we think about innovation and addressing those need states for our consumers as we think to the future. Right. So talking a little bit about inflation, I think, you know, people will be a little bit more concerned about food waste in general. You know, they don't want to. I think there's an environmental reason there, but there's also a financial reason. So I know this is something that is becoming more and more prominent in the food system, uh, definitely getting attention outside of the food system as well from major, you know, media networks. So I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about Kerry's viewpoints and kind of solutions when it comes to food waste. Um, definitely, Chris. We we did a study on sustainability behavior across consumers, and you know, since the the focus on packaging, we've realized a lot more focus from a consumer standpoint as well as from an industry standpoint in our customers who want to look at solutions for food waste, not just for the planet. I mean, it's it's the it's a holy trinity, right, of people, planet, profits, um, and we we look at food waste with a very critical eye. We know that about a million tons of food are waste and thrown away each year when, you know, on another side of the planet, people are looking for, um, you know, solving for food deserts and making sure that nutrient density is, is a key feature in consumers' diets. Food waste is certainly a solution we need to, you know, find for. Um, and at Getty, in the Food Waste Awareness Month, um, our teams in um, specific marketing and specific business units actually created what is called the Kerry Food Waste Estimator with the intention to change behavior, right? With the intention to show consumers the impact of their at-home um, food waste reduction. What does it have an impact on their budgets, on their lifestyle, um, as well as for manufacturers to estimate food waste from a shelf life extension standpoint. So what can shelf life extension do to help eliminate or minimize food waste, which is not just, you know, a perception value among consumers where they would, for instance, shift, you know, from one brand to another because probably their slice of bread lasts one day longer when they, you know, shift to another brand and you lose that equity, but also from a manufacturing standpoint and across the value chain, um, what's the impact of just extending one day of shelf life could bring um, to, to eliminating food waste. And it is an estimator that's actually live right now. If you're a consumer listening in or a customer or you know one of our kind of partners listening in, you can certainly go on to um, the link. And maybe, Chris, you could share this after as well. I use it all the time to see how much food am I wasting and how much I could save um, from a selfish standpoint. I've been doing that. Um, but that's another, you know, link that you could probably supply and people can actually go into. It's just called the food waste estimator and it's by Getty. And just to build on that, Sammy, I think what's really interesting, whether you're a consumer, just, you know, we all purchase food and beverage and many products throughout our daily life, or you're someone who is a manufacturer, you know, in meat, bakery, sauces and beyond beverages, um, Addressing food waste and what sustainable impact you can make as an individual is tricky, right? There's there's not one silver bullet that's going to make an impact. But I think what's what I've really enjoyed, and I've also played around with the estimator for my own personal impact, is sustainability isn't just about um, how many more minutes in the shower it might be equivalent to, which is great to know, um, or how many, but more importantly, how many more people can we feed if we're tackling food waste? How much food could you save and how much even on an individual basis, how much money you might be able to save? Um, And I think there's a question that people often think sustainability equals more cost to me or to my company. 
But at least from a carry perspective, through our food protection team, through our stocks and broths team, our smoke and grill team, and, and certainly more areas of our business, being able to tackle food waste in a way that helps companies realize the power that they already have in some cases or enables that through certain solutions um, or processes is really powerful and something that we're very committed to. So um, I hope everybody enjoys getting to, to understand what impact they can individually make when it comes to food waste. And then certainly for those that have company sustainability goals, this is a great way to sense check where you may be or challenge yourself and your teams to ask some of those questions and see, are we doing enough? What more can we be doing as well? Gosh, um, Shannon, I have, I don't know how people behave, but that, you know, this focus on food waste and knowing that people waste about 24 million slices of bread a year in the US is just, you know, those figures, you, you can't shy away from that, right? Yeah. Um, and it could just be education to Chris, right? We also have a responsibility as food and beverage manufacturers in the industry not to just, uh, you know, satisfy motivations and need states, but we are also in such a place um, to pivot and educate consumers in the marketplace and solutions that can be better for the planet as well yeah. as for the person. And gosh, that uh, that really just makes me want to come to work every day too, right, Shannon? Mm-hmm. When you know, look, we are not, we're not doctors and nurses and oh my gosh, just huge respect for that, um, that team. But it also makes me feel like, look, we are doing something for the better of the planet. Um, whether it is just, just that, whether it is saving that extra slice of bread from going to waste um, to really providing solutions that are truly nutritious and sustainable just makes you, you know, just keeps you going. And I think that's a great place to end is talking about that. You know, I tell people in my personal life, you know, your food choices are going to have a huge impact every day on the environment, on your finances. We do it, you know, we eat three times a day and people, people take that for granted. But, you know, when you make these choices Mm -hmm. and when you really think about it, you know, you can really make big changes in your own life. And I think it's definitely an opportunity for food manufacturers and beverage manufacturers to kind of meet those needs for these consumers that really seem to be waking up to a lot of these different types of, uh, you know, factors that are influencing their life, right? We got those 13 different need states, but, you know, there's a lot of other external things that are affecting them as well. So I really like the idea uh, closing out here, just thinking, you know, food manufacturers really, really have that opportunity to meet these new need states that are kind of emerging for the consumer. Absolutely. And we're here to help however we can as they go on that journey. We're really passionate about it. Hopefully that came through clearly, Chris, but we we really want to make an impact. And uh, Sami mm-hmm. and I are certainly happy to connect with anybody who wants to learn more. And we'll definitely share a bunch of links in the description of this episode. So if you're looking to learn a little bit more about Kerry, taking a look at the waste monitor, all of the different things we talked about today, take a look in the description of this episode. You'll find the links directly there. But I want to thank Shannon and Salmia today. Really, really great conversation. Uh, learning a lot about consumer motivations and inflation and a whole bunch of different topics. But like I said, I really appreciate both of your breadth of experience here. Uh, and really was a great conversation. So thank you both. So that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks again for joining, and we'll catch you next time. This is Chris Campbell, signing off.